I was only 20 years old when I was asked to do my first funeral service. And that's a call nobody particularly ever wants to get, even if you know exactly what to do, and you know the people well, and you think that God has given you a relationship with them to be of help to them in such a ter terrible time. Uh, nobody I know enjoys that kind of phone call. It completely caught me off guard. The lady was crying too hard, really, for me to understand her. All I could understand was that her son had lost his life in absolutely terrible, morally shameful conditions. And really, the only reason I was getting the call was because I was only the only person on the church staff who spoke Spanish. So I, what do you do? What do you say? I called older pastors, and at 20, it's not hard to find an older pastor. Almost everybody is. <laughs> and feeling the weight of my inexperience, I, I asked for help, and I was given some direction and some encouragement, but it was just a, it was a messy situation. The lady who had lost her son had been crying so hard that she hadn't given me proper directions, and this is long before GPS would make things easy. I went two hours away and then 40 minutes in the wrong direction to the wrong cemetery. And I realized the mistake by talking to the people who were there with about 42 minutes to go before the graveside service. I literally screeched up just in time and in my disarray left my wool coat that I'd been so careful to press in the car. So I'm standing there with a the Bible with my hands shaking, surrounded by people wailing hard enough to be heard probably back to the first cemetery. It was one of the most difficult experiences ever. And I stood there in a too overly starched white shirt and tried to find the words to comfort a grieving family in the worst day of their life. And I now understand all these years later, because the grief was so real and the trauma was so deep, I don't know if they could remember a single word that I said. I certainly don't. All I remember was telling them as best I could about Jesus. Now, I've been a pastor now for over 20 years, and I've received that call more times than I'd like to count. And I've learned something about grief, and my education about grief began that day in the middle of all their mess and the mess I was making of my own, not knowing how to cope with the seriousness of the situation. Grief is messy and none of us are particularly good at it. There is no school for grieving. If there were such a school, only a few people would dare enroll because we live our whole lives to avoid loss. Everything you do, everything I do is calculated on a day-to-day -day basis internally, whether you're conscious or not. You want life to go well. You want to be blessed. You want to be happy. Nobody plans for the graveside. Nobody plans for the hospital. Nobody plans for broken families and wayward children and struggling marriages and all the other myriad losses that life, whether you like it or not, will hurl your way. It's ironic, then, that the book that we're looking at today as we continue our walk through the Bible is so often avoided because it is a book of an expression of grief.
Bible readers and usually Bible teachers avoid it, probably because of its title. Its title is not inviting. I'm reading to you today from the book of Lamentations. Nobody wants to hear laments. Occasionally we have to. Occasionally we lament, and my discovery has been that nobody is particularly good at it. For one thing, when it comes to grief, most of us are taught, at least in the United States, that the only authentic grief is that which is spontaneous. Somebody who is sobbing and has tears dripping down their face and they're wailing in the moment of the discovery of their loss, that grief we know is real. Grief six months or a year later, two years later, that comes out in more controlled, measured, thoughtful, deeper ways, that we're not so sure about. The book of Lamentations explodes that idea that the only grief that is real is spontaneous grief because it is a book-length treatment of a man's and his nation's lament of their grief. You can think of these five chapters as five separate eulogies given at a funeral. They are funeral dir dirges or elegies where someone very carefully chooses words to express the sorrow that is deep in their heart, hoping, and you'll see in the center of the book, to give hope and perspective to those who have likewise been shattered. And it's not spontaneous. It's not spontaneous at all. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to the book of Lamentations and let me show you why I know that Jeremiah's grief expressed in writing was not a spontaneous expression at all. It was real, but it was not spontaneous. If you'll thumb through the book of Lamentations, you'll notice that the first chapter has 22 verses. You'll notice that the second chapter has 22 verses. You'll notice that the third is quite a bit longer. How many verses in the third chapter? 66. And then the fourth and the fifth? 22 each. That's not coincidental. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And what the broken-hearted prophet did in the first four chapters is write an acrostic of grief. You remember acrostics from primary school? An acrostic is where you take a word or maybe an alphabet and you write a letter or a poem using the words that have been chosen for you. In Lamentation's case, the author who we've always believed is Jeremiah, though we're not entirely sure the book doesn't name his author writes chapter 1, verse 1 with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 1, verse 2 with the second. Chap the third verse with the third letter. The fourth verse with the fourth letter. And so on and so forth. In the third chapter, he expands that to three lines per letter. That's why you have 66 verses instead of 22. Only in the fifth chapter does he break with that form. But even then, he reminds you of the Hebrew alphabet with 22 verses. Is that fake? Is it for show? No. This is a man whose sorrow ran deep, who once the tears had stopped dripping and he could reason with himself and under the guidance of God give comfort to himself and direct his shattered people in his burned city to hope to be found somewhere 
carefully, letter by letter, line by line, wrote out his grief. What had happened in Jerusalem is one of the most horrifying scenes of the ancient world. God had been pleading. We've read about this in the Bible for weeks now. He has been pleading with his people to walk according to the promises that he had made them. Way back when he brought them out of Egypt in in the book of Deuteronomy, barely the fifth chapter of the Bible, he gave them conditions of relationship with him and promised them blessings if they would only do what he said and love him with all their heart. But they would not listen. You ever been in a season with God where he's speaking to you, but you won't listen? Or you think you know better, or you insist on doing your own thing because it'll feel better right now, and deep in your heart you think somehow it's going to work out better in the long run anyway? Israel has been doing that with only spasmodic occasional obedience for hundreds of years. The northern kingdom has been victimized by one ungodly king after another, and finally they are destroyed and scattered by the Assyrian army. The southern kingdom was more blessed. They had a few godly kings, but most of their kings led them away from God, and that's why one of the great emperors of the ancient world, Nebuchadnezzar, systematically laid waste to Jerusalem until one day he destroyed it. If you read Lamentations, Jeremiah will take you into gripping eyewitness accounts of what he saw, heard, felt, and smelled in the city streets of Jerusalem. Because this was the ancient world and an army as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore had filled up the horizon and cubbed toward them, the people had been told to take refuge in the fortress cities, and one by one, they had been destroyed. Finally, the capital city was entirely too full. Far more people than had ever been designed to live there crowded its streets, and slowly they began to ration food and water, and then they began to fight each other for food and water, and horrible scenes that I won't, I won't pollute your mind with of human cruelty took place in the, sea, in the streets of Jerusalem. Jeremiah pictures the princes of his city being hanged up by their hands. He pictures children staggering in the streets and fainting for hunger. He pictures priests being slaughtered as they go to worship and pray to God without answer that he will spare them even now and keep this dread pagan army away from them. This is the book of Lamentations, and this is what it sounds like in his first chapter. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who is a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. That's the beginning. That's just the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet in the first chapter. Another thing that we don't believe, that we often believe about grief and makes most of us pretty bad at it is there's a common belief that grief shouldn't last very long. 
as I keep checking in with people who have had great losses months and years after that loss, a frequent thing that people tell me is that even the people closest to them, sometimes verbally and sometimes by attitude, give them this kind of feeling. Shouldn't you be over this by now? Right, it's been six months. Don't you think it's time to, can you guess what the phrase is? Don't you think it's time to move on? Well, how do you move on when you've lost everything? How do you move on when, from Jeremiah's perspective, it seems that God's plans have been halted and his promises shattered? This was the city where God had put his name. This is where God, by his instruction, had built a house for his worship. This was the place from which a light was to shine among the dark nations of the world so that all the world would know that there was a God in Israel who ruled not only Israel but the whole world. How do you make sense of those kinds of promises that from this nation, a light would shine and a Savior would be born when all you have left is smoking rubble and piles of dead bodies. And Jeremiah won't get over it. That's why sometime after the worst of his emotions had passed and he could compose himself well enough to remember the alphabet and the images that had kept him awake at night and tortured his sleep, could be remembered calmly enough to start choosing words, he wrote this four-chapter acrostic. This national lament with a chapter in the middle reflecting his own struggle, his own fears, and his own trouble. But probably the worst thing about grief and the thing that makes it hard for all of us and the thing that they would teach you best if they could teach you in school to fight against is the sense that in the worst of loss, God is nowhere to be found. About a year ago, I took a course offering some direction of how to come alongside people who have been shocked by loss and death. And something I'd heard all my life was finally explained to me. It said, when you come and you have to give people the worst news of their entire lives and they start screaming something like, where is God or why God or there is no God, please understand this, that's not yet a crisis of faith. At that moment, that's a cry for help. And it made sense to me. Jeremiah is going to go line upon line, chapter after chapter, pondering where God is in the middle of all this. In verse 5, he says, regarding Jerusalem, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. See, this is the hardest part about Jeremiah's grief. Everyone who is surprised by loss and suffering that has any concept of a relationship with God asks themselves first this question, was this my fault? Is it my fault? Lord, I know I haven't obeyed you perfectly. Is this your justice come into my life? Here's the hardest part about Jeremiah. He knows in this case, in their instance, in this specific tragedy, it is their fault. 
Look at verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Look down to verse 7 now. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. You see the picture there? God, we dedicated this room for you. This is where you told us to meet with you. And now pagan soldiers stomp through your altars and desecrate it and howl in a foreign tongue the worship of other gods because they think you they've defeated you. But it's you who are doing all this. It's your hand that we're feeling. And here's the hardest thing when you're in the middle of grief. The question, and in Jeremiah's case, the certain knowledge that God has directed this just as he promised to do after hundreds of years of pleading for his people to return. Let me be very personal and practical and step outside just a moment of this narrative to tell you. Do not confuse what I am telling you now with your specific situation. Jeremiah knows because of what God has promised and warned and prophesied that they sit in smoking ruins because they have disobeyed him. I am not saying that about your specific situation. How could I know? I do know this. When grief comes, that's the first question that will come to your heart. Where is God? And can he be found in the middle of all this, especially if I have a sense and especially if I have the certain knowledge that I have brought this upon myself? Do I have hope when I know that the pain I'm feeling is something that has happened to me because I have disregarded God's instruction? I've been there. I've been racked with guilt thinking that I've ignored wise counsel. I've ignored my family's legacy. I've ignored the Bible I read every day. When it's that kind of grief and when it's that kind of loss and those kinds of questions, where do you find hope? That's why the center of the book of Lamentations is so important. The literary center from which the entire, toward which the entire book climbs and later descends is found in one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. I'd like to look for you to look at it with me, please, in chapter 3. Verse 20. Jeremiah, knowing this, says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. That's what grief feels like. I can't get away from it. I remember that God has done this and it's our fault and my soul is bowed down within me. Verse 21. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And now one bright ray of light is going to shine in the middle of all this darkness and it's in the Old Testament in the worst day 
of their lives in one of the worst days in human history. And it's here for us so that you will know that this is at the center and this is the founding truth of every disaster, every bit of pain, every bit of grief you could ever taste in life. I'd like you to read it with me from your outline, please. If Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. Jeremiah said, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Read. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What is the answer to grief? The steadfast love of God. The fact that his, his love never does come to an end. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He speaks to God. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We're not very good at grieving, but we can build our lives on this truth. You can walk with God through all your pain, all your trouble, all your sorrow, all your misunderstanding, all your guilt when you know that you've landed yourself in trouble and it is your fault. In Jeremiah's case, can it be really that the promises that God made have now been completely forgotten? The city that was to be a shining light is now a smoking ruin. The people who are going to bring the Savior into the world, according to the promise made to Abraham, they're being hauled off into foreign captivity. These are the kinds of cultures that destroy people, that change names and change cultures. Can God deal with a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar who lays a city to, to waste and siege for 18 months until cannibalism takes over inside the city streets? Until walls built to protect the innocent are breached and soldiers pour in and the strongest men in Israel run for their lives? Where is God in all of this? Jeremiah says in the middle of all his grief, line on line, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What is Jeremiah trying to tell us? Simply this. When the world around you is ending, you need to remember that the love of God never will. This is grief. Grief is having your world upended. And you can't, I cannot begin to tell you the amount of mixed joy and sorrow that I feel as a pastor in our congregation on a day like Mother's Day or Father's Day. Because I know that the idealized picture of what our nation has set this day aside for and what the cards say and what your dreams were so often differ from what life actually is. And your world ends. When your world is ending... Jeremiah would tell you from the rubble to remember that the love of God never will. Nothing can change his love. There's not one thing on earth that can change his steadfast love. The steadfast love, literally, 
The faithful kindnesses, plural. That's how deep God's love is. It has a lot of facets, a lot of faces. It has a lot of feelings to it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We experience them as new every morning because great is His faithfulness. Suffering does not change it. The first thing that suffering and pain tells you when you have loss in your family is that God is nowhere to be found and He no longer cares for you. Your thoughts lash outward and inward, seeking to make sense of it, beginning with yourself. Is this my fault? Jeremiah says, even when it is your fault, you need to remember the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Discipline does not extinguish it. When God is correcting you as his child and you know it's your fault, remember this from Psalm 119, verse 75. The psalmist wrote in another acrostic of Scripture, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. You've brought pain into your li- into my life that it was guided by your faithfulness. Remember that in heaven, if God is your father, you have a perfect heavenly father. And yes, he does correct. And yes, he does warn. And yes, he does plead. And yes, he does train and discipline. But his hand is always guided by his steadfast love. Always. Nothing in the world will change that. Because he is good, we can hope. Jeremiah has seen a lot of death. But the unfolding story of the Bible will tell you that the steadfast love is so real. It is so true that when the world around you is ending, the love of God even then never will, that not even death can extinguish his love for you. To know that, I have to look past the book of Lamentations. Because the book of Lamentations is just that. It is a funeral elegy. It is a carefully chosen, wisely written Word of lament. But as I look across human history, I discover something stunning. Nebuchadnezzar would not reign forever. In fact, he would be humbled by God. And in a very short period of time, the people that he had put under his royal rule and deported into his kingdom, he would see his own throne shake and another king would take over in his place. And a Persian king would feel the strangest stirring in his heart. And he would decide in the span of one generation to send the people of Israel home. And the city that once saw nothing but death and slaughter and famine and plague and starvation would be rebuilt. Dusty city streets would be paved again. Rubble would be cleared. Houses would be built. A temple would be rebuilt. God's worship would be renewed. And in the city of Jerusalem, one day... The one that God had promised would come because he had been born from this same shattered nation in a little village that no one thought much of called Bethlehem. And one day Jesus would come into Jerusalem hearing the praises of God directed at him. And in this revitalized city, a greater tragedy than the destruction of Jerusalem would occur. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the only sinless, perfect man to ever live, would have false accusations hurled against him. And he would enter grief that I cannot begin to understand and suffer loss that is literally infinite because he is God himself. And against Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, both 
the Jewish authorities and the Roman rulers would conspire all to drag him under the weight of his own cross outside the city of Jerusalem where he would die, he would die a terrible, shameful death. And they would place him in a grave, but in three days we would discover that death could not hold him. And just as he had promised, he would come back to life to give eternal life to everyone who believes in him. Now, why is that? Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He is faithful. His love is steadfast. He will not let you go. When our world is ending, the greatest truth in the universe is that the love of God never will. Suffering can end it. God's own discipline does not change it. On the contrary, his faithfulness guides even that discipline. And the greatest truth is, of all is seen in the cross of Calvary. So while the question is understandable and natural and perfectly normal and part of the grieving process to ask, as Jeremiah did, God, where are you in the middle of all this grief? The answer always is, I am right here, loving you, being faithful to you, giving you new mercy every morning. You can trust me, put your hope in me. Because, church, when our world is ending, you need to remember that the love of God never, ever will. That's what the cross of Jesus says. Let's pray. Can I give you a moment to reflect over your own life? Maybe talk of grief doesn't make much sense to you because your life is happy and full. If so, I'm thrilled for you. We pray for that. We pray for you to live happy days and enjoy God's blessings and to walk through happy seasons. In your happy times, remember, that's the steadfast love of the Lord for you. His mercies that never come to an end. His mercies renewed day by day by day. But maybe I talk of grief and you're reminded of the worst days of your life. You wouldn't even want to count them all, but maybe it's been painful to be reminded of them in church. Can I invite you to enter that pain and remember that when your world is ending, even then, especially then, the love of God never will? His love is for you. He is faithful to you. You can put your hope in Him. I mean, He's a wonderful Savior. Nothing on earth Nothing on this earth, nothing outside of this earth, nothing in this life, nothing in death can separate you from the love of God given in Christ Jesus. His love will never end. It is faithful. It is steady. It is strong. It is real. And it's for you. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, He is the key. He is the embodiment. He is the open door to God's love. You need to trust Him. You need to turn away from sin and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I need to be loved. I need to be cared for like that. And you can this morning, and I invite you to do just that. If you've been struggling with it and thinking about trusting yourself or doing a little bit better or trying a little bit harder before you finally give up and give in to Him, make this your day of surrender. Come to Jesus and be saved. And if you're already His child, 
all your grief, all your sorrow, all your disappointment, it's all right there. Your Father's love is on the cross, giving His Son so that you'll know this day and every day of your life until you see Him for yourself, that His love for you is steadfast and loyal and it will not ever, ever end. Lord, I pray right now that you would call people to yourself and that those who are grieving for whom this day is especially difficult, let them cry out to you as grieving people do, as Jeremiah did. And speak, Lord, in love to them, reminding them your steadfast love is for them. Your mercies will not end. Your faithfulness is great. For those, Lord, who don't know you, make this the moment that they turn from themselves and turn to Jesus. I pray this in his name. for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.